to be seated, and if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 14, we're going to jump right in to our text today, Acts chapter 14, and we're going to begin reading in verse 8. We're going to talk about idolatry today, worshiping false gods and so forth, and I saw a pretty funny joke that's funny to me anyway. My my daughter and son-in-law just got a cat, a little kitten, and uh, I'm not a big cat guy, but you know, when your daughter gets a cat, you're a cat guy. So uh, I guess I have a grand cat now. Uh, but there was a there was a, a saying or a, a joke that I read this week on the subject of idolatry, and the joke was that uh, thousands of years ago, cats were worshipped as gods, and they have not forgotten this. <laughs> it's easy to let uh, it's easy to let uh, the notions of false. Were, uh, false gods and idolatry and so forth. It's easy to let that stuff sort of kind of fade in the background to forget about what that is and what it was and, and what God has done for us and so forth. So today's text is really all about that. Well, let me just go ahead and begin reading in uh, Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, And seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprung up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying, Men, we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And then verse 18 says, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So, now, I just have a bunch of questions when I read this passage. There's a lot of questions that come up, and I guess one of the one of the most immediate ones, because of the way that this story ends, is: Do you think these people ever repented? Do you think they ever repented? The the, the tension is, verse 18, even with these words, which were some pretty good words, in my opinion, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Paul's sermon, Paul's sermon doesn't seem to have had much of an effect on these folks. And uh, to be honest, when you look at the biblical data related to idolatry and the worship of false gods, I think one of the things you have to conclude is, is that it's really hard to shake this particular problem. Uh, it's really hard to repent of idolatry and really leave it behind. I mean, that's actually one of, if not the fundamental plot line, I would say one of, I think Jesus is the fundamental plot line of the Old Testament, but one of the fundamental plot lines of the Old Testament is is how hard it is for these people to just be done 
with the whole idol thing. You know, Revelation 9 tells this interesting kind of story of some kind of massive plague that besieges, you know, the whole world, and it kills a ton of people, and it's sort of this testing and judgment of God. And, you know, what it's talking about for our purposes right now doesn't matter. But, but what's interesting is, is that, you know, this scorching, hot, painful plague, whatever this thing is, has fallen on the world, and a bunch of people died. And then it says in verse 20 of Revelation 9, the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. So this is like biblically pretty clear that this is a hard thing to shake. I, I think I, I kind of call it later in this sermon a sticky, a stick, a very sticky sin. You know, you get you get some gum on your shoe and it's like, well, that shoe is going to have gum on it forever. Uh, there, in, in at least a couple of New Testament books. The, People are presented as maybe converting to Christ, but maybe not. And, and the reason why it's that way is because they're, they're still really tempted to go back to the, the, the idolatry. And so you kind of don't know. Paul says to one group of them, I, I fear that I may have labored in vain. For I thought you were free from these things, but now you seem to be going back. So this is a really hard sin to shake. So when we see in verse 18 that even with these words... Um, they scarcely restrained the crowd from sacrificing to them. I mean, that kind of fits with the whole biblical data. And I thought it'd be interesting, I think you can see this sort of peeking through our text, to just ask, like, why is it so hard to repent of idolatry? So look back at verse 11. Um, and when the crowd saw that Paul had done, what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying, Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker, and the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. Now, I'm pulling all of these reasons out of this text. I'm not going to take tons of time to explain where I see these and so forth, but let me just, let me just try to give you, show you six reasons why idolatry appears to be such a sticky sin. And the first one, and they all start with S, and the first one is sincerity. Um, it's really hard to stop doing something that you are convinced is right. <laughs> Duh, right? Uh, by definition, worshiping a false god means you are engaged in religious activity, right? You're worshiping something. Uh, I read a study this week, and I'll refer to this later in the message, that uh, separated people out into different belief systems, and they, they got one group, and they encouraged them to essentially meditate on and trust in a false god. And I'll tell you what the false god uh, is at the end of the message. But what they found is, is that all of these control groups, as long as the people really believed this thing, this, this god, they found that there was an equal distribution of relief from stress and anxiety amongst all the groups. It, it wasn't dependent on what they, what they believed being true, like universally true. It was merely dependent, the stress and anxiety relieving uh, effects, merely dependent on whether the person who believed it thought it was true. So in some ways, um, people who are stuck in idolatry are being very sincere. They're, they're worshiping a false god, but they don't know that. 
they think this is the right way. Um, another reason why this is a, a usually sticky sin is religions are kind of cultural glue. And there's a, families are built on religious principles and, and religious agreements and spiritual agreements and so on. Uh, cultures, cities, civilizations. Religion has got this sort of, this worship has got this sort of glue-like capacity where it keeps people bound together. So another reason why this sin of idolatry is so sticky is, is if you're in an environment where a false god is worshipped, well, that false god is like a part of what's holding your family together and what, what's holding your city together and so on and so forth. And so uh, there's this issue of just, you know, early Christians, uh, well, early converts to Christianity out of, in, out of idolatrous situations, like they lost their families. They were outcasts in their own cities. They couldn't do business anymore and so on. So one of the reasons why it's hard to shake idolatry and false worship is it's actually kind of a, a cultural glue. So there are massive social implications if you decided not to worship this false god anymore. Um, a third one is superstition. There is probably in our passage some vertical fear involved. <clears throat> so I would say there's, there's probably some horizontal fear. In other words, I don't want to leave this way of life because everybody else believes this is the way and this is my kind of social safety uh, net or whatever. But there's also some vertical fear that you might not know about unless you knew some of the archaeological and historical context. We know that at this time that this happened, there was a story going around about Zeus and Hermes visiting another city not very far away from Lystra and Derby. So there's like this, this, you know, this superstitious myth that, yeah, not that long ago, Zeus and Hermes visited a town down the road. And the story goes like this. They took the form of humans, and then they went around looking for a place to stay. And nobody would give them a place to stay, so they destroyed the city with a flood. And so maybe some of the motivation, I think probably, some of the motivation that's happening in this text when they say, Zeus and Hermes have taken on flesh, they're here. Some of the motivation is fear. When you worship a false god, there's, there seems to be sort of this like, what if I stop? How will things go for me? Um, I, I know people that have really struggled to unplug from something they, from a cult, for instance, they know is patently untrue, except part of them doesn't. And they're like, man, what if this is really the way? Like, because then I've just, I've just really angered this false god that, I've, that I'm worshiping. Another reason why uh, idolatry can be extremely sticky is, is it's just simple. Idolatry is uniquely, most, most idolatrous situations are uniquely external. Like, you just have to do some stuff once every couple times a year. It's more of a checklist kind of belief system, and that's appealing to people. Uh, it's appealing to all of us, like just to be able to walk out of a situation, out of a church service and say, I did my duty and now I'm right with God again. Like you just don't, you won't get that here. Uh, you won't get, we don't give you a checklist. Actually, the checklist is you have to give 30 percent. No, I'm kidding. Uh, uh, we don't give you a checklist. Like, like that's just not how, what Christianity is based on. And so there's something attractive if you're in a system of a false system staying in it because it's just very knowable, it's very doable, it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't require a ton of thought. One of, the most <laughs> one of the most overlooked but perhaps most relevant factors that keep uh, idolatry and false religions extra sticky is, is sexuality. 
a lot of times, false religions offer more sexual license than, say, Christianity does. And this was a real factor for early uh, believers or early converts to Christianity. Their old religion, just good old-fashioned hedonist paganism, like they just had a very open mind consider, compared to what Jesus teaches us about sexuality. I heard a story this week. Uh, there's an apologist that I watched sometime, and he had a brother who's also a Christian who went to Princeton, and every night he would stay up till you know midnight, 1 o'clock, talking to all these guys, answering all of these intellectual uh, questions, concerns about, about God, about the nature of God, and so on. Basically, he was the only believer in this group of friends that were all extraordinarily intellectual, and they would pepper this guy with questions until late at night. And often, you know, he would get tired, and, you know, around midnight or something, he would say, guys, if you have actual questions that are, and if, if these questions, like, are, are what's keeping you from trusting Christ, like, let's stay up till four. But if these questions are just a smokescreen that will allow you to sleep with whoever you want to sleep with, I would like to go to sleep right now. <laughs> I would like to go to bed. And he said routinely in that situation, his friends who were not Christians would say, okay, but, like go to bed because <laughs> like, you're right. I'm not going to change my mind because I have other things I want and, and these questions are just ways of justifying uh, this other thing that I value more. Uh, last one on the list, I believe, is Satan. Uh, idolatry is difficult to quit because the Bible says that there's actually dark spiritual power at work behind these false gods. It's funny how the Bible talks about false gods because on the one hand, it'll say things like I read in, Revela well, in Revelation 9.20, it says it both ways, right? It says these are these are wooden things. These are things made out of stone or wood or whatever. They can't talk, they can't walk, they can't speak. But then in, in Revelation 9, 20 and other places, it'll also say, and they're demons. All right, there's this dual kind of idea. On the surface, they're just dead, but there is a dark spiritual power at work behind these that ensnares people. Galatians 4, 3, Paul writes, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, in the context, in the Greek and in the context, a better translation of elementary principles is probably elemental spirits, which is interesting. I'm not going to help you figure out what that is. I've got to keep moving on, but that's interesting. Later, in verse 8 of Galatians 4, he says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods like a spiritual force at work behind idolatry. 2 Corinthians 4, you might know this verse, verse 3. And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Interestingly about that verse, it's as if the dark spiritual forces are saying, here, worship this false image so you do not see the true image of God who is Jesus Christ. It's like, I'll give you an image, just not so you don't see the real image. So yeah, I mean, that's six different 
reasons, each one of them pretty serious, pretty heavy. Like, I think, that's, think of that as six really heavy chains that would keep someone from repenting, successfully repenting of worshiping false gods. And what would happen? I think the next question is, well, okay, so what would happen if they did not repent? What would happen if they did not repent? What would happen if they lived out the rest of their lives worshiping Zeus and Hermes, died, stepped into eternity, met the living God, being adherents to Zeus and Hermes religion? Well, Galatians 5, 19 through 21 makes it clear what would happen to them. Uh, verse 19 of Galatians says, Galatians 5 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, that's the one we're talking about, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And Paul says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what would happen to these folks if they did not repent of their false worship? Well, they would not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, before we move on from this passage, I, wanna, I want you to really notice some things about this Galatians 5, 19, 21 passage. And, and I want you to kind of see this as connected to the Acts 14 passage. When, uh, when, when the people of that town began to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods, they did not say, oh, good, as long as you worship something, you're going to heaven. Right? Um, there, are not, there are not many paths to God, but Galatians 5 tells us that there are many paths to hell. Uh, because there's, if there is only one true God then worshiping something else is idolatry. I want you to think about this, this verse as sort of like, imagine going into a, a large arena. So like take the Sprint Center downtown or some other large enclosed arena. And let's say that inside that arena, that's hell. Now think about this Sprint Center or something. I guess it depends on who's playing, right? But, uh, but like, no, inside, you go in there, you're in hell. Well, one of the weird features about arenas is how many doors are there into the arena? Like, I mean, there are a lot of exterior doors that lead into the arena. Now, look at this passage. If, if you're doing the slide, oh, you've got it up there. Great. Maybe go back one slide if you could. Uh, look at this passage and imagine that these are all different doors into the arena of hell. Okay? So just, just do this thought experiment with me. Um, so like you have people walking into the hell, into hell through the envy door. And I guess like they're all like checking each other out, you know, because they're envious. All the envious people are walking into hell through the envy door. And then you have, uh, all the sensuality related people walking through the sensuality door and they're all checking each other out in a different way. And then you have the door called drunkenness that's on the list too. And that one leads to hell too. And and in that one, you've got people kind of, you know, staggering or like, woo, you know, depending. Uh, but they're, they're, they're all kind of staggering in through that door. Um, and then you've got a really bunch, a bunch of upset people walking through the fits of anger door. You know, they're all kind of going into hell. And this is their main sin. 
they're just pissed off all the time, and they're all angry at each other. Uh, and then you have the rivalry door, and people are pushing and shoving, you know, as they're working through the rivalry door. Well, you've got all these doors, all these ways to hell, but it seems to me that that all this, all, or most of the so-called nice people in the world will be going through the same door, and that's the idolatry door. Um, it's the most social of all the sins. It's the most socially compatible, socially compliant, agreeable sin on the list. It's the least relational wrecking. Like most of the things on this list have immediate consequences that tell the person, hey, you're doing something wrong. You know, whether it's getting syphilis or a hangover or whatever. Like most of these sins have immediate consequences. False worship does not. And, and, and so in some ways, if you're imagining this arena and there's hell in the middle and everybody's just going in through all these doors, like all of the nicest people would probably be going through this door because they are sincere. And there is like a social sort of uh, uh, loyalty involved in this door and so on and so forth. I just think that's worth noticing that there will be a lot of people going through that door who we would be happy to have as neighbors but God would not be happy to have as occupants with him forever in heaven. All right. Are you an idolater? That seems to be a good question to ask. If, if idolaters will not, um, will not inherit the kingdom of God, are you an idolater? Well, I think, I think you'd be really dumb not to actually just ask that question of yourself. So, Let's ask the question, but then let's like be let's like have some integrity about how we answer the question and like use the Bible well and so on. Let's not just throw guilt on each other for the sake of feeling guilty because this is bigger than that. It's more important than that. Are you an idolater? I mean, how would you go about answering that question? Well, I don't think you can just like like go through a list of false gods and say, "Do I worship any of these?" Because False gods are sort of like whack-a-mole. I mean, it, uh, what's really interesting from my eschatological perspective is I think God keeps killing false gods and then new ones just come up. But like, I think that there's gods of the age. So you could, you could look, in, look into hell and you'll find groups of people kind of collated by the God they worship and the age that they lived in. So for instance, you'll find people in hell that are Worship, that were worshipers of, of Babylonian Marduk. You know, they're the, some of the old, that's one of the oldest false gods that we know about. And then you'll have some people in hell that worshiped Ra, that are Egyptian, and they grew up in that time. And then you'll have some Zeus worshipers, and then you'll have some Odin worshipers, and then you'll have some more modern Nazi Odin worshipers. You know, you can just keep going down the list and say, like, hell's this place where idolaters go, but the gods that they worship are all they all go by different names and they're constantly changing so unfortunately you couldn't ask am i an idolater by is my god on this list because the list kind of changes so how do you answer the question well here's how i think the text teaches us to ask this question what is it that you think who is it that you think thank t-h-a-n-k who is it that you thank for the goodness you observe in the world? I think that's the tell. 
That's the tell on whether you are an idolater or not. Who is it that you thank for the goodness you observe in the world? Do you see how I'm getting that from the text? What, what happens at the beginning of this passage? Paul heals a man who is lame since birth. And, and what, what, what's the next action that takes place? The crowd sees, they observe goodness occurring in the world, and they move to gratitude. The, pers- the people that they move to be grateful to don't exist, but that's kind of the point, right? Like, that's the idea. How do I know if I'm an idolater? Well, who do you think, who are you grateful to for the goodness that you see in the world? Let's just say general goodness. Who are you grateful to for babies and sunsets and, you know, older married couples who are still in love? Like, when you see those things, who do you thank? Who are you grateful to? That, that to me seems to be the way that this text would teach us to think about or ask this, answer this question, am I an idolater or not? It's like, well, who is it that you are grateful for, grateful to, for the goodness you see in the world? And then it even gets more personal. Look at verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Verse 17 is real key. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So Paul makes it even more personal, and I can make it more personal. Who is it that you are grateful for, grateful to, for the good stuff that happens in your life? Who do you thank when good stuff happens in your life? That's, that's the idea. That's the test. Am I an idolater? Well, who do you thank when you see beautiful things in the world? Or who do you thank when good things happen to you? Because in our text here, these people are idolaters because they thank someone who doesn't exist. They thank the wrong, they thank a false god. And if you were to go to, to Egypt and they had an especially bounteous crop in a particular year, who would they thank? You know, if you were to go to Germany and it had been an especially successful uh, beer brewing season, uh, who are they thanking? You know, that seems to be, I mean, I think there are other ways to answer this question, but this one seems pretty solid and it is in our text. Where your heart, when you see good things, turns to gratitude in one way or another. Even if you are a grumbly person, gratitude exists, it's a thing, and it's not depersonalized as so many New Age millennials would like to think. Have you seen these gratitude journals where, and the idea is to just be grateful in general? It's like not to thank any person, not to, not to be grateful to God. It's like, I'm just going to practice gratitude. Well, no, gratitude has an object. You have to be grateful to someone. I was actually, I had dinner with someone who, who is not a, a Christ follower, and they wanted my wife and I, you know, to, to just, they said, we, we give thanks before the meal. I thought, okay, this will be interesting. Uh, like, like, so we, we all bowed our heads, held our hands, 
bowed our heads, and then just said, thanks. And I'm like, okay, like, you know, like, who is this letter addressed to exactly, you know? Uh, but, but it was the universe. We, we you know, the, there was, I'm thinking the universe. Well, there's, there's idolatry. The universe is not God. There is a God who made the universe. The reason why this question, I think, is so effective is, is that the basic cause of idolatry is working your way up the chain of causation and quitting too soon. So I think that's why this question is so helpful, is you work your way up the chain of causation and you quit too soon, or you just have the wrong thing at the end of your chain of causation. What I mean by a chain of causation is, is like, everybody does this. Well, if you're thoughtful, you do it. Um, there's food on your table, and you can think about how that food got there. And you can work your way up the chain of causes. And, and like one of the causes these people were very aware of, they lived in an arid climate. This place was actually known for not getting a, a, a tremendous amount of rain. They got enough. So when Paul says this to them, they understand the value of rain. You know, uh, it's, it's much harder to be an atheist when you're a farmer. Because you work your way up the chain of causation and you see things you can do and then you see things you have no control of. So you work your way up the chain of causation, and you say, okay, I've got this food. How did I get this food? Well, I mean, I worked. But, you know, my neighbor down the street, he, he's, he's a good guy. He broke his leg this year, and he couldn't bring his crops in. Um, or whatever. So, like, there, there's a dead end to work. We'll talk about this in a minute. But then you keep working your way up the chain of causation, and you're like, well, then the, one of the big reasons why I have this is because of rain. Well, you could keep going, and you could keep going and saying, but also there's another reason why I have this, and that is because of uh, photosynthesis. <laughs> like, who came up with that? You know, <laughs> was that, that, came, that was definitely here before I got here. Uh, that was a thing a long time ago. So you keep working your way up the chain of causation, and I think what idolatry actually is, is, is either people who don't work their way up the chain of causation far enough, basically intellectual laziness for some reason, or people who have been lied to and been given the wrong thing as the fundamental cause. In this case, what's interesting is, is that Paul tells them, we, we worship the God who created the world. And do you know what? That's not a question. Believe it or not, that is actually just not a question that this culture was asking at the time. They thought of God as a, they thought of earth as a God. They, Zeus did not create the world. Zeus himself was born. Zeus, Zeus was a begotten God. Um, it, they didn't work their way. So even when they're saying, thank you, this is, this is another thing that Hinduism does. The, the Hindu rain god is Indra. Well, where did Indra, is, is ultimate? Is Indra, did someone make Indra? Yeah, yeah. So why aren't we thinking that, you know, that's, the, that's why this question is helpful, is, is you, you've got to be careful. One of the things that will happen, I think, when we are judged, is God will just ask people, when you, when you were satisfied with good food, how far up the chain of causation did you work? And why did you stop when you did? So I think that's why that question makes sense. Let's talk about some bad answers to that question or some, some gods of this age, some potential 
gods of this age. One of those potential gods of this age would be science. Do you remember I mentioned the study where people were invited to meditate on something uh, as the ultimate, and they found psychological benefit from it? The study is actually this. They got all these religious groups, and they said to the Christians, hey, tell yourself that God's in control. You know, they got some Muslims that said, tell yourself that Allah's in control. And they got some atheists and agnostics, and they're like, what do we tell these people? What do, what do they tell themselves? Here's what they told them. Tell yourself that science explains everything and that it's sort of, that the universe is ordered and makes sense and, and so forth. Tell yourself that science is the ultimate cause. That just, that just doesn't work, does it? Just wouldn't work. But lots of people worship science. They work their way up the causation and it's so devastatingly, shockingly dumb that you have to realize, oh wait, there's a spiritual, there's a spiritual reason for not going further. Because yeah, you could tell me, I say, well, where did your food come from? Well, you could tell me about photosynthesis. You could tell me about rain. I say, well, where does the rain come from? You say, well, it's actually the, it's you know, clouds have water vapor in them. Okay, where did H2O come from? And you just, you just, you keep asking why, and eventually you have to kind of say, like, well, there's something beyond my ability. There's something beyond science. Science just explains what a thing is. It doesn't really explain what it's for or why it came into existence. But this is probably, in our day and age, one of the most common false gods. Um, Pfizer actually released a commercial in 2020 that said, at a time when things are most uncertain, we turn to the most certain thing there is, science. That's a fundamentally religious statement. That's an act of worship. That is a worshipful statement. That is not a scientific statement. Okay, so that's one. Another one is self. Probably the one. That's another false god that we thank when things go well. Let's be honest. A lot of times, the person we thank when things go well is ourselves. I mean, you can just imagine some of my fellow American brothers sitting in this room and Paul says, God gave you this food and God gave you this, you know, he satisfied your hearts. And the temptation for many of us who do work pretty hard in life is to say, I did that. Who do you thank when things go well? Man, I, I think it's pretty easy to thank yourself. Self is a pretty common false god. And not only does it show up, it, it shows up when thing, good things happen, but it also shows up in other ways. I mentioned hell deliberately like three or four times, and here's why. I didn't mention it to scare anybody, but I suspect that when I mention hell, some people will object to the fairness of that. And if that's you, then I'd like you to consider if perhaps you are using your morality as the final arbiter of what is good and bad, in which case you would be worshiping self. Um, people that have intellectual questions about the faith, if, if the intellectual questions are the ultimate and must be satisfied, then, then the God in that scenario is self. My intellect is the ultimate arbiter of whether this is true for me or not true. So God would be self in that 
instance. In the passage, in verse 15, Paul calls this activity of not working your way up the chain of causation properly vain. And vain, in English, has two different meanings. Vain in English means futile. You're working in vain. There's nothing you can do here. It's not effective. And that's the primary meaning that Paul has for this moment. It's like you're, you're literally spinning your wheels. You're engaged in religious activity at 10,000 RPM, and you're not making any ground. Um, you're not satisfying God. You're not, you're not accomplishing anything. But, of course, there's another way that vain gets used that emerged out of that other meaning in English today, and that is self-absorbed, self-focused. The truth is, is that when you really reduce it all down, almost all idolatry is rooted in this second meaning of vanity where we create gods in our own image. And if you know about the Zeus and Hermes mythology, that's what that is. There is a question of where all this stuff came from, and there is the proposition that it came from people who are like us, only more avengery, you know, more more superhero-y than us, but basically like us. So the root problem of idolatry appears to be creating gods in our own image. Okay. Now, in verse 15, Paul says this. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And then he says in verse 16, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. This idea that Paul says in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, that does not mean in past generations, God was permissive toward idolatry amongst the nations. What it means is, is in past generations, God let people go through this cycle of futility without sending men like Paul to them to tell them they must stop. The good news of this moment is that there's someone there telling them, hey, no, this isn't, this isn't okay. And if you really thought about it, you, you don't, you're not answering any questions by worshiping a God who has himself been created. I know it feels religious. I know it feels socially responsible to worship in this way and so on and so forth. But if you really thought about it, this is vain. This is futile. And then he says in verse 15, we bring you good news. Now, we're in chapter 14 of Acts. So Luke at this point doesn't need to elaborate for the audience what the good news is. Because he's done that over and over and over again in all the other chapters. He's told us clearly, Luke has, what the good news is. And I'll just summarize it this way as I introduce communion. False gods created in our image claim to be satisfied by sacrifices which we just so happen to have. Hmm. Interesting. Let me say that again. False gods created in our image claim to be satisfied by sacrifices which we conveniently just so happen to have. It's almost like the whole thing's invented. The true God says he cannot be satisfied by anything we have. 
Therefore, he must provide his own sacrifice. And he has provided his own sacrifice in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the good news that Paul was bringing to these people who were eager to offer a bull, which they just so happened to have. His message was, the God who actually is will not be pleased by you offering the things you have. The God who exists can only be pleased by you offering things that you do not have, namely, perfect righteousness. God, being kind, has sacrificed himself. He has offered himself on the altar to tear down your altar. And I'll just read Isaiah 53, one part of it, that speaks of Jesus as this sacrifice who pleases God and who himself is the one true God. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By the knowledge, by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So as we move into this time of communion, we invite you, if you are a follower of Jesus, and he is the sacrifice that you claim, he's, he's your only hope. You struggle to love him as you rot to, and I'm going to talk about that at some point, because I don't think that's the same thing as idolatry, by the way. You struggle to love him as you ought to, but he has offered himself to you, and he is yours. If that's you, come and partake of this table, and remember, celebrate that, that through God's gift alone, he has lifted you out of a cycle of vanity in which you were trying to offer things to God that didn't exist and trying to offer things that weren't even that impressive. He's, off, he's lifted you out of that cycle, and he did that by giving, him, giving us his son and killing his son to make him a sacrifice for us. If you're hearing all this, you're like, well, I don't know. Maybe I am an idolater. Maybe the person I think when things go well for me isn't Jesus. Well, this moment, this moment right here, God, the whole thing Paul's doing here is he's saying, you're doing something terrible, but I have words right now that can actually change you. Would you, this morning, if that's you, just put your faith in Jesus and say, he's the point, he's the real God, he is the sacrifice that makes me right with God, I'm going to put my faith in him. Would you do that this morning? So let me pray for us, and then you can come to the table as you feel led.